So, Joel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of the lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches wide. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the open pastures and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. So those words we just read, they're dark, aren't they? They're grief-filled and they're hard. You know, you, you know, so why are we looking at them? Well, this little book, which we'll look at over the next few weeks, is a book of darkness at first, but then of light. First suffering, but then of marvelous joy. Uh, it's a book that starts perhaps with judgment, but ends with grace. It's also pleasantly unusual among the prophets in that the people who this message first came to listened to it carefully, and the result was a good and happy and wonderful result. We get to see the truth of the word in chapter 2, that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see how God poured out good things on his people and promised them more for the future, more that we get to share in as well. It's a little book about repentance. That's a word we often misuse, but simply the process of saying sorry to God for what we've done, turning around and coming back to him. And it shows um, in a life-changing way, really, how repentance and joy are held together in the Christian life. How repentance comes before joy, darkness comes before light. 
It, it's so easy, as we've said before, to think that thinking about regrets of the past or of sins, things we've done wrong, is damaging, that it can show a kind of unhealthy pessimism, that it'll crush our self-esteem. But repentance is like a waste disposal system, so that it gets rid of the things in our life that shouldn't be there and brings us through it to peace and joy and refreshment. Joel shows us that when we forget the importance of repentance in our Christian lives and certainly in life in general, that we're cheating ourselves out of the deepest joys. That deep, thorough, even heart-wringing, heartfelt repentance is exactly what leads through to freedom, to joy, to wholeness. It brings us life that's bright and sweet and clear. And in this little book, we discover that God will even use pain and suffering themselves when he has to, to bring us to taste first that repentance, but then that joy. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. But for this reason, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We're going to look at this week's uh, passage in three parts. We, um, we're going to start in 1 to 5. We hear that God has a word of encouragement for the suffering. Then in uh, the next section, um, we will, 5 to 12, we'll see that suffering is there in part to wake us up to reality. And then thirdly, that Sorry, let me rephrase all of those. Firstly, God calls us to listen when we're suffering, one to five. Secondly, God calls us to reality when we suffer in five to 12. And then in 13 to 20, God calls us to repent in order that we may have life. So firstly, God calls us to listen when we suffer. The first, we have to see here the great importance of Joel's message. He underlines it very clearly. Uh, it's a message that we must wake up to hear, or the first listeners had to wake up. They had to hear. They had to listen. Nobody knows exactly when this little book was written. Nobody knows who Joel was. But we do know from what he writes that it was a time of terrible suffering, when the people of God were going, undergoing a calamity worse than anything they could have imagined. There, first of all, there'd been a drought. Verses 17 to 20 make that really clear. Food was so tight that people hadn't bothered looking after their storehouses, their granaries, all of that. It all fall, fallen into, in, into ruin. And as often happens in, after a drought in those areas of the world, when the plants started to sprout again, locust egg ha eggs began to hatch as well. Now these insects, when they came in great clouds, they, they can cause enormous damage, still do sometimes in the modern world. And this time, a plague of locusts of really unimaginable awfulness had come and eaten everything that the drought had left. He says, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have eaten, the, left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now, nobody's quite sure what the four different types of locusts there are. It could be just different life stages of the locust, but we know what matters. Different waves of these creatures had eaten everything. There was no food left. The crops were gone. The seed for years to come was gone. Everything was gone. And Joel says, you know, has anything like this ever happened in your days or the days of your forefathers? It was something worse than the oldest people could remember having been told by their oldest relatives. 
was hard to imagine. I mean, we lived through COVID. That was in some ways something different to any of our ancestors can imagine. It wasn't as bad as this by any means, but we, perhaps we can feel a little of that, that strangeness of what they felt, that this was something that seemed new. This is a modern locust plague. You can barely tear, tell what it is, but the air is absolutely full of insects. My grandfather during the war was, um, I think, in Africa, and he uh, saw a locust plague. He was driving along the road, and in the distance they saw that a dark cloud on the horizon it slowly grew bigger and bigger as it grew nearer until they began to notice locusts on the road and the, the car began to slip and slide as the road was covered with these creatures. And they obviously screeched to a halt and um, there's just this blanket of the creatures covered the windscreen so that they couldn't see anything. They were sitting there in the darkness. And these swarms of creatures can be 10 billion strong, uh, modern scientists tell us, 80 million in every square kilometre. One, one swarm can eat enough food to feed 40,000 people for a year, and they eat that, that much every day. Uh, there was a, a huge uh, locust plague in 1958 in Ethiopia, and World Vision tells us they ate enough grain to feed a million people for a year. So imagine these poor people. They wake up in the morning. You know, things are tough. There hasn't been enough rain for the last few years. The crops are small, and you come out of this, your house, and you see a distant cloud of locusts like darkness against the hills and within hours the, the whole air, the air is just full of millions upon millions of them covering every branch coming in every window thick on the ground inside your pots and pans in the house and when they go everything has gone with them every leaf every blade of grass the bark of the trees has been stripped back till it's, they're white the, the fruit trees that their branches snap under the weight of these creatures and you know in your heart that even though they're gone, that the few seeds that are left in the ground to make green life come back again, well, besides those, there are millions upon millions of little locust eggs in the soil ready to hatch and devour everything that grows back. And it's pretty hard for us to grasp, isn't it, what that meant in a society without supermarkets or international aid. You know, we discovered very briefly what some kinds of shortage can look like during COVID or this, this Christmas, this winter. It's been hard to get eggs, but it's not been hard to get everything, has it? This was really serious. You know, I think this is here partly. Each of us, many of us, will face what feel just like awful life-overturning events every so often in our lives. Things that seem unbearable. Well, God's people know what that feels like. These people felt it. And for them, it would have felt pretty close to the end. That whole region of the world is littered with the archaeological remains of cities that were abandoned because of famines just like that. That would have been their question. Is this the end? Is this the end of God's people? Is God's land going to be desolate and his people dead and gone for archaeologists to dig up in a few thousand years? Or even more. Verse 15, is this the day of the Lord, the end, the final day of reckoning, finally come? And it's into that awful situation God speaks. We have the word of God here. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. In God's people's hour of need, he speaks into their lives. He has words for them. Words that they should never forget. Tell your children. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. God has something worth listening to in the very darkest moments of our lives and of theirs. 
Secondly, in 5 to 12, we see that God, when we suffer, is calling us to face reality and then come to him. Look at verse 5. Um, it says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. On one level, that's simple. You know, you can't be a drunkard when all the wine or the grapes have been eaten. There's nothing left to drink. But what God is saying is, pay attention to what's happening. You'd think people would say, after a cataclysm like that, you know, we can see perfectly well what's happening. It's perfectly obvious. We can't miss it every day, of moment of every day. But while people see the superficial things on the surface, they're tempted, like you can be with alcohol, to cover over in your mind what's happening, just to flee from the reality of facing what's going on, to keep from thinking about the hard questions of life. You know, we can do that too, can't we, when hard things come on us? You know, it's good to be able to relax occasionally, but sometimes we can just be tempted to fill every single spare moment with TV or obsessively follow the news or never look up from our phones just so that we don't have to think about the, the stuff we're, we're facing. People see that things have gone wrong here, but they haven't thought about why. They're asleep to it. They try not to think about it. But God says, wake up. And then when you wake up, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. In other words, imagine a bride whose husband-to-be dies between the marriage and the wedding night. Is that, uh, I had an aunt, great, sorry, great-great-aunt like that, whose fiancé was killed in the First World War, grieved all her life, never married. And it's kind of lamenting, the life you look forward to is being taken from you. There's a deep wrongness about this. Life shouldn't be like this. Things like that should never need to happen. And of course, for God's people, that was exactly the case. God had invited his people in the Old Testament into an intimate, committed relationship, a covenant. And he made promises to them, and they made promises to him. And when that relationship was as it should be, when the people were obedient and just and warm-hearted and generous, the land would overflow with good things. Deuteronomy 28 promises that. God would pour out blessings on their crops, their cattle, their herds, everything. But if they turned away, if they were hard, unfaithful, cruel, the land would be dry and barren. Among other things, it says, you'll so much seed in the field, but you'll harvest little, because locusts will devour it. That pattern of blessing was there in the Old Testament to teach us, whose lives are very different, God does not promise to give us good things when we're good and bad things when we're bad, but it's, that pattern is there to remind us of the ultimate importance, the greater importance of knowing God than all the all the, the good things of this life. That, and just to, to, to hear their lessons that they learned the hard way so that we can learn them an easier way. Verses 9 to 12, that's what, what they're saying. They're saying the land's under a curse. It's a sign to these people that they've left God. They've left the right way. And as a result, even the offerings that they would bring in the temple of God, in other words, their worship to God, was impossible because they didn't have the things they needed to do it. And God's saying through Joel, what's happening outside, guys, shows you what's happening inside yourselves. You need to come back to me. So face up to reality, lament and weep, not just because of the physical disaster, but weep for your, your hard hearts, your selfishness that's brought it. Make this disaster an opportunity to turn back to God. Now, what does that mean for us? You know, if you know your Bible, you know the New Testament is very clear our lives do not work like that. If we do bad things, bad 
things don't necessarily happen to us. If we do good things, good things don't necessarily happen to us. We can't say every time we suffer that it's because I did something naughty. Not impossible, but it's most of the time not, not the issue. We too have a covenant relationship with God, but it's one where God is completely committed to love us and keep us till the day we're with him forever. But at the same time, what happens here in Joel's day, this, this awful event, is a picture and a lesson for us. It's a reminder that ultimately, when it comes down to every suffering, everything that goes wrong in the world, is a sign that there is something not right with the world. That ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, human rebellion has broken this world and placed it under God's curse. So that the problem is still deep in our hearts. There is something wrong with human hearts that leads to a problem with the wider world. So every twinge, every pain, every difficulty, every moment when, as verse 12 puts it, gladness dries up, is a reminder the world is not as God made it to be. Not as it will be one day either. And it should remind us, we live in a world with a problem. We live in a world that needs God and needs to come back to him for real life. And we're the problem. Our self-obsession, our self-centered ways, our hearts are the reason that God cannot pour out onto humanity all the joy and all the blessing he wishes to. And that reminder should draw us back to God. Now, that's not theoretical. That happens. You know, I have heard numerous stories since COVID of people who during COVID thought, wait a second, what's happening around me reminds me that I was living for the wrong things, that there's something more to life than this and investigated Christianity and became Christians. I'm sure many of us know people who, when things began to go wrong in life, we thought, who thought seriously about whether Christianity was true or not and began to investigate it. And even for myself, it's often illness that's the most effective thing in reminding me, bringing me back to God. C.S. Lewis uh, talked about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says it's one of the main reasons that God permits pain at all. Because pain wakes us up, it makes us think, it makes us listen to God again. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now in 13 to 20, Joel tells the people the way back, the way of hope. He tells the people that it is worth coming to God, that there is a way of hope. In verse 13, the priests, the the religious leaders, are to lead the people in weeping, repenting, coming back to God. They're to weep in sackcloth. That's what you do if a close relative had died. 14 and 15, they're to declare a fast, to to call a solemn assembly. Everyone is to come and pray to God. Um, Joel is calling them back to repentance. And in the process, he teaches us too about repentance. Notice that they come and they call, but we've already said they have no offerings to bring to God. All the food was gone. They've got nothing to bring, nothing to offer. They can't make things up to God. They can't make a bargain with him. They can't pay off their debts. All they can do is come and cry. That's all they've got. All they can do is weep, come to pray to God with longing that he'll put things right. And, and see too, this is not just a call to the particularly wicked, to the pagans or the secularists or to the bad people out there. 
the, the prophet himself joins in. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. He himself, God's prophet, is also praying with longing for things to be put right and sorry for all that has been wrong. For us too, repentance is turning our back on our sins, regretting them and turning back to God himself. Not trying to bring something to him, not trying to make things up, not trying to make deals with him, not trying to say, I'm sorry, I'll sort myself out, but bringing ourselves, our problems, our struggles to him, often with grief. And the New Testament puts it this way, there is a godly sorrow, a sadness, that brings repentance that leads to salvation. And in the end, it leaves no regret. No regret binds it at all. It wipes it out. Because when we come to God like this, he comes through. He comes through. He brings life and hope again, as we will see in the late, as we carry on in the book of Joel. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. So when we go out today, um, what do we remember from this strange little book? It is talking about things very far away and very long ago, very different from our own times. But it is reminding us that pain, and probably most of us will meet some pain today, is there... I was going to say it's there to bring us back to God. That's not quite right, because that's not the only reason pain is in the world. And if, but it is every time we meet it, it is still a call to think, to reality, to come back to God, to awaken us to our need for him, to the reality of the sin and wrong in our own hearts that has done so much damage in this world. And a reminder that by coming to him, we with the people of Joel can look forward to a joy and hope and grace that will flower in the second half of this book. The world in so many ways, it urges us not to think, not to face reality. And when it does that, it steals from us the joy that comes through repentance. It steals from us the refreshment and the taking away of guilt and fear and regret that comes that way. But if we will face up to it, if we will come back to God with sadness for the things that are wrong and longing for things to be put right, he will, as we, we quoted at the beginning. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray.